Right, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Colossians. Thank you for every single person that you have brought here tonight. You've brought me, you've brought our worship team, but you've also brought everyone here that's new or uh, that comes regularly. And so there's something for each of us to hear. There's something for me to hear. There's something for them to hear uh, from your word, from your lips, Lord. And so would we be edified? Uh, It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Today we're talking about molding culture. Andy introduced it a little bit for us. And I want to define kind of what culture is. Culture is the way we do things around here. Culture is the way we do things around here. This comes from our book, Fruitfulness on the Frontline. We're reading it as a church, and if you don't have a copy, you can pick one up at the Welcome Center for free. Uh, We're giving that away as well. So culture is the, the beliefs, the customs, the arts, the sciences, the way of doing things, the academics, Uh, business, anything that's really around us, that's shaping us, that's shaping others. That's what culture is. It's, It's kind of everywhere. You can't escape culture. It's everywhere. Now, the culture of Boston is going to be a little different than the culture of Westford isn't it? So the culture of Boston is more of a a city place, but there's similarities. There's going to be a a love of academics in Boston and also in Westford. There's going to be a love of the arts in Boston and in Westford. There's also a love of the Red Sox and the Patriots in Boston and in Westford. I see at least one nod. There's there's some love out here. But there's also differences. We're a a suburban community. Uh, Perhaps uh, there's a, a appreciation for owning your own land, your own property, and having a yard, getting outside a little bit more. Uh, There's definitely appreciation in Westford for families, for raising families, uh, for community sports. Uh, Today, we, as a church, uh, attempted to shape a little bit of the culture of Westford by having the trunk or treat, uh, where we were kind of fostering a fun family environment in our parking lot uh, with in kind of the vicinity of a church trying to be a blessing to the community. So that was a way that we were attempting to mold the culture of Westford. As Christians, I believe that the Bible calls us to be influencers on culture in a positive way. That we're not just to live our faith in a little shell, that it's just, you know, us here in the building, but ultimately, uh, kind of like uh, a lighthouse shines out beams of light, we're to influence and impact and bring the light of Christ out into the world. And I think we can see that in today's passage, the book of Colossians chapter 3. The idea of influencing culture is an intimidating thing. Uh, Maybe you have a culture on your front line. So there's a unique culture that you have, whether it's in your neighborhood, in your classroom, at your office. And what I'm saying is God calls us, if we follow him, if we believe in him, that God is calling you to impact your culture. And that's kind of a a scary thing, like building the Panama Canal or going to Mars. It seems impossible, but with Christ, with God, I believe we can do this. And that uh, is part of the message of Colossians. Now, Paul is writing to a new church, a young church. The, The apostle Paul was a leader in the early Christian church. 
And he is writing to them saying, you need to get away from a culture that uh, kind of promotes rules for righteousness. In other words, I'm going to obey all these rules and that will make me righteous. They have some teachers that are saying these things. So if I just obey God, God will be happy with me. He's also saying you need to get away from kind of false spirituality. There were some weird beliefs in this early church that you could kind of pray to angels or try to control angels, and they would do what you want. Paul's saying get away from that sort of culture. That's not true culture. And head towards Christ-centered culture. Head towards gospel-centered culture. Our vision as a church, what we want to become, is a gospel-centered church. And that message isn't so different for Colossae. Now, how do we change the culture? I believe kind of changing the culture of your front line into the community begins with a new mindset. Begins with a different thought pattern. The change has to take place in here and in here before it can take place out there, right? I believe it also isn't just any sort of mindset. It is the mindset of Christ Jesus. In chapter 2, so the chapter right before the one we read uh, tonight, uh, Paul is talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we're a church that believes in this literal miracle that happened 2,000 years ago that Jesus died and that he rose again. And that's a pretty incredible thing to believe. But Paul is writing that there's even more to it than just a fantastical kind of story, even though it's true, there's there's more to it. That if you believe in Jesus, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, in one sense, you spiritually died with Jesus 2,000 years ago, and you rose again. Well, that's pretty amazing. That's a pretty incredible truth. Now, if this is true, Does this change anything for our everyday lives today? Paul says, yes. How does he start chapter 3? He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. So we're to act differently in the everyday. Like this this is meant to impact our lives and make a real difference. See, somehow, right now, there's this mystery that's true that right now, I, as a, as a believer in Christ, am with Christ in the heavenly realms. It says, since you are, have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you're, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So we're with Christ spiritually even now. We see this in other places in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Well, that doesn't make sense. How can I be with Christ, but also clearly here? I am clearly not in heaven as lovely as our church building is. Well, there's this mystery in the the scriptures, and Jesus preached this message, and it's this concept called the now but the not yet. In other words, I am spiritually now with Jesus, but I'm not physically there yet. Jesus preached this message that the kingdom of God had come all through his earthly ministry. But people looked around and said, there's no kingdom here. And Jesus' kingdom was different. It was a kingdom of forgiveness, of grace, of chasing away things like demons and bringing in God's new life and transforming people's lives. And that's kind of an inbreaking of the kingdom of God into our reality. It's called the now but the not yet. It's kind of a hard concept to wrap your mind around in Christianity like the Trinity. 
Now, Paul twice says, set your hearts on things above. Set your mind on things above. Now, this does not mean forget about your reality or be so heavenly minded you're, you're no earthly good. Maybe you've heard about that, uh, that said of a Christian. Well, they're just so focused on eternity that they can't get anything done in this life. Paul is not saying that at all. Rather, he is saying, think about this world, think about this reality the way that Christ thinks about it. See, if you're with Christ, if you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, if you're spiritually present with him, how does that change the way you view your every day? How does that change your Monday morning when you get up, get in your car, and you drive to Dunkin' Donuts? If you realize that you are present with Christ spiritually and Christ is present with you, you would realize that, well, America may run on Dunkin' Donuts, but I run on Christ Jesus. (laughs) When you go to your meeting in the morning, your 10 a.m. meeting with your bosses, you wouldn't have anything to fear because, well, Christ is present with me and I'm present with Christ. And how about around lunchtime when I'm sitting down to eat lunch with my coworker, some I enjoy and some I don't so much? Well, how would it change your mindset if you knew that Christ was present with you spiritually and you're present with him? That he is at your front line with you. How about in the afternoon, 3 o'clock, when you're going into a difficult meeting and there's someone that uh, you're supervising and you have to have a difficult conversation with them about their performance? How would it change that conversation if you knew that Christ was in that meeting with you? You're in that meeting with Christ. And this applies not just to our jobs. This applies to when we go on our afternoon walk in our neighborhood at 5 o'clock. What does it mean to walk through life with Christ in my neighborhood. I know some of you are students, whether you're still in high school or middle school or you're going to college. If you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, he goes with you into that setting too. How do you think differently about that? Well, I want to form relationships with other students. I want to do a good job because I want to honor God in this setting. Thanksgiving's coming up. That's an exciting time, but I know it's a stressful time as well when you have family over. How does it change how you view Thanksgiving if you're inviting Christ to that meal, to that time with family. It's a new mindset. We can change culture. We can change the culture of our front lines in a positive way that, that bears kind of witness to the truth of the message of Jesus Christ. And it begins with a change in the way that we think. Changing culture begins with a new mindset, and it's the mindset of Christ Jesus Now, maybe some of you think, uh, well, a mindset change, that's not really that big of a deal. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if if there's 360 degrees, right? And if you change it by one degree, that's kind of like what changing your mindset is, a one-degree change in the direction that you're heading. Now, did you know that if you change the flight pattern, the flight direction of an airplane one degree, you will radically change where that airplane ends up. For every mile that you fly in an airplane, going one degree to the left or to the right, you will end up 92 feet to the left or to the right. 
For every 60 miles that you fly in an airplane, you will end up a mile to the left or a mile to the right just because of that one degree change. And if you were to kind of get, get, a, get in an airplane at the equator and fly all the way around the earth at the equator, your destination would change by 415 miles because of that one degree change. Taking a new mindset to your front line is like a one-degree change. God has just given you a new destination, a destination that he is calling you to, and it can begin with something as simple as thinking differently about where he's calling you, beginning to do something a little bit differently. Now, I wanted to list some practical ways in the bulletin that you can make a one-degree change so you can take this mindset and maybe put it into action just a little bit, a little change here or there. I'm hoping, I'm challenging you to, by the end of the service, have marked off one or two ways that you want to try this week, a different change in mindset. You could pray for your coworker at lunchtime. When you sit over your meal, yes, you can bless your food, but maybe just bless that God would uh, be, uh, pray that God would be blessing your coworkers or maybe your family if you're thinking about them. Number two, stop to talk to my neighbors when I go for my walks, just saying hi and having a little bit of a conversation. Number three, ask the grocery store clerk how their day is going. I know this, uh, if, if parents do this, this will make the kids, their teenagers, feel really comfortable when you have a conversation. That's one way that you can just change your mindset a little bit. Invite a friend out for coffee and really listen. And sometimes our front lines and our churches intersect. Host a new family at church for dinner. There are lots of different ways that when we begin to think about God's presence in our everyday differently, that we can put these into action. So I challenge you to check off one this week and try to put it into action. Changing culture begins with a new mindset. Now, as we talk about changing culture Let's remember Paul's letter that he's writing to this, this early church, this young church, and he as part of this letter, he has to actually counter some false teachings made about Christianity. So he doesn't just blindly say, we want all of culture. He says, well, I'm going to have to counter some false teachings made about Jesus and about uh, kind of the truth of Christianity. See, Christians sometimes are called to live counterculturally. Christians are called to live counterculturally. Now, this isn't the only thing I think we're called to live. I don't think we should be counter everything. We're going to get into that a little bit further. But our passage, I think, addresses two areas that we can be countercultural. And these aren't comfortable places to be countercultural. But I think we as believers in Jesus are called to do this. So when culture promotes sexual expression, sexual gratification, we as followers of Jesus, as a church, are called to offer sacrificial love. Now, sometimes the, the history of the church, certainly even if I were to look at my own individual walk with Jesus, uh, sometimes the way we respond to culture is by condemning the culture and saying, oh man, look how bad the culture is. And I think we're not actually called to do that as much as we are called to offer something much better. Yes, we, we, we say this is wrong, but I have something here that's so much better that I want to tell you about. 
So Paul says something very strong. He does say, put to death, church, as I'm writing to you, believers in Christ, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Those are some pretty hefty things. Sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, and it means every kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Paul says, as a church, as believers, you need to search this out in your own heart. How can you be honoring God with this activity? Now, the Bible is controversial, but the Bible does teach that marriage is between one naturally born man and one naturally born woman. That is what the scriptures teach, and I believe it. But it doesn't say that every, when you do life this way, when you, when you honor God this way, that everything's going to be perfect. See, in the beginning, the first marriage was between a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and things did go well. There was, there was beautiful uh, intimacy. It was a loving relationship. It was a kind relationship. It was a relationship without sin. But then at the garden, they were tempted by Satan, by the serpent, and they ate of the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil. And God had said, don't eat from this tree. Trust me. You don't need to know what, what's, what's behind this tree. Trust me. And the people said, no, we're going to do it our way. And now sin and mistrust and uh, miscommunication and uh, manipulation were all introduced into the marriage relationship as a result of that initial sin. And ever since then, people have been yearning, yearning for the intimacy that marriage holds, that marriage held at the garden, but they've been mistrusting kind of the institution of marriage because, well, just marriage produces manipulation, doesn't it? And this has led to, as, as we, we seek intimacy apart from marriage, this has led to hurt in our culture. This has led to more single mothers in our culture, more people having to give up their children because they don't have a family to care for them. This has led to more things like abortion. These are things that we don't want. This is a result of immorality and sin. As Christians, we're called to put this to death in our way of life, to examine our hearts, to confess it before God and say, God, I'm sorry, change me from the inside out. But then we're called to offer a message of hope to our society, to our culture, to those around us. As we, as we have those everyday conversations and these sorts of topics come up, we're to offer the message of sacrificial love. In verse uh, 14, uh, Paul writes something. He says, you know, of all these virtues, he says, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Do you know what the word for love here is? It's the word agape. Agape love is a self-sacrificial love. It's unmerited love. It's love that puts other people's needs above my own needs. It put, put, puts other people's needs first, no matter the need. That's what the kind of love that we as Christians should be offering, because that's the kind of love that God has shown to us, that he put our needs first, that he came and rescues us through Jesus. We offer, as a community, selfless, agape love to the unloved, to the outcast, to those around us on our front lines that other people reject, we show them 
unmerited care, unmerited compassion, kindness that they don't deserve, but none of us deserve it because we're all broken, we're all sinful. Christians are to live counterculturally, not just condemning, but offering a better way. Selfless love, agape love. I wanted to, th- to kind of show a, a story of someone in their lives trying to put this into practice. And I ran into the story of Mariah Peters. Now, Mariah Peters, uh, you might not know of her, but uh, in June 2010, she auditioned as part of American Idol. So maybe you guys remember American Idol and how big that has been. And going in, she knew that there was a lot of emptiness and darkness kind of in the entertainment industry, that it's, it's beautiful, it's entertaining, it's fascinating, but there's also a lot of hopelessness, a lot of emptiness inside. And so she wanted to be a light. She wanted to help mold the culture for Jesus. She wanted to follow Jesus and be faithful in that situation. And so she auditioned, and she got through the first audition, and apparently there's, uh, between like the stadium auditions and the the kind of before the judge auditions, there's five months of interviews and other auditions. And as she went through these interviews, she was very honest and open about who she is, that uh, she is someone who believes in Jesus, who has faith, who is waiting for sex inside of marriage, who's practicing purity, who led a girl's Bible study. And when, they got, when she finally got to the judges, she sang, uh, and they questioned her. The celebrity judges said, you know, you have a beautiful voice. You clearly have a lot of talent. You've got, you got charisma, but you're trying to be too perfect. You need to go out into the world, and you need to make mistakes, and then you need to come back. And uh, she was doing something especially unique uh, that another judge noticed. Another judge said, I see here that you have decided not to kiss a guy until marriage. Well, you should go out and kiss a guy and come back. That's very personal uh, feedback from a judge there. And she walked out, and as part of the uh, part of the interview process, they say, "Well, if the judge is, if they turn you down, you need to come out and you need to kind of like throw a fit. You need to be angry. You need to express yourself to the cameras, to Ryan Seacrest." She said she came out and Ryan Seacrest kind of got in her face, but she didn't throw a fit. She didn't get mad. She didn't demand her way. She just said, that's okay. And she knew on the inside that God had just closed that door and that was going to be okay. She went out to the elevator, went down and was walking out, and a man came running, and he caught her. And He said, my son and I heard your voice and how beautifully you sing, and we heard what you said to the judges, and we were really inspired, and there's someone that I want you to meet. And she went and met this connection that eventually led to Nashville, where she signed with a record label, and now has two records, and is still promoting Jesus, kind of the culture of Christ, and she is seeking to honor him in her everyday as well. Now, I know not all stories turn out that well, but that's a pretty cool one, of someone who attempted to to honor Christ in the midst of culture, and it really turned out well. Christians are to live counter-culturally. Now, there's another way, not only in this sort of attitude, uh, this framework of offering sacrificial love, but when culture justifies anger, we're to offer forgiveness. So verse 8 talks about these. It talks about, you know, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your 
lips. And the passage comes back a couple verses later to the same topic, and it says, no, you're to, you're to, honor, you're to offer forgiveness. You're to offer uh, grace. Verse 13 says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. It says, here's kind of how the world does it. Here's how you're being taught by some of these bad teachers to live. But God's culture, the culture of Christ, is a culture of forgiveness, of healing, of hope. It's a culture of beauty. We're, we're taught in, in kind of our world that we're to stand up for your rights. You know, if someone disrespects you, you're supposed to fight back against them. We're, to, we're taught that it's okay to get mad. The culture of Christ is a culture of forgiveness of compassion, of saying, yes, you have wronged me, but I'm not going to hold it against you. This is a powerful message because we don't live in a world that forgives. <laughs> we live in a world that kind of keeps track of the ways that you've wronged me, the ways that you've hurt me, and I'm going to get you back. The word forgiveness means to cancel debt, to cancel debt. See, when someone owes me, when they've wronged me, I'm going to cancel that debt. I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to keep on living life. I'm not going to bring it up again. Why would we ever do that as Christians? Why are we called to live that way in the culture? It's because we've been forgiven, right? Our verse says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. The Lord is Jesus. Forgive as Jesus forgave you. Now, if you know Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, he's forgiven you. He's forgiven you of all your sins, all the ways you've ever wronged God in your past, your present, and your future. And it's tempting to get mad, to, to, to be frustrated, to be angry, but then we've got to remember, well, I'm broken, and look at all the things that I have done, and yet God has forgiven me. Jesus has forgiven me. See, this is the gospel. This is the good news. The gospel... Yes, there's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the Gospel is the good news that Jesus forgives broken people. And not only does he forgive us and just wipe our sins away, God does wipe away our anger, our rage, our malice, our slander, our filthy language. God kind of, if, you know, there's a record of those, and God wipes them away on the record, but then God also, in one sense, takes a pen and begins to write in the place of those uh, the other attributes that we see in verses 12 through 13. God says, well, not only is this person no longer full of rage and full of anger, this person's uh, clothed with love, with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. That's the kind of forgiveness that God offers us. That's beautiful forgiveness. I don't know if I've ever forgiven someone in that way. <laughs> I've said, okay, I'm going to let your offense go. But I don't know if I've ever said, wow, now I see you as someone who's perfect, who never blew it, who's clothed in kindness and compassion. I want God to give me that kind of heart of forgiveness. And I hope that's your prayer too. Because then we can truly forgive. And this is a forgiveness that molds the culture of the church, but then also molds the culture out there. As they see, wow, these are people that that gather in community, that do life together, and they forgive and love each other, that is beautiful. <laughs> I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that culture. Christians are to live counterculturally. 
When culture justifies, justifies anger, we offer forgiveness. What's the ultimate goal of kind of uh, changing our mindset, of, of living counterculturally? Our goal is to help culture flourish. See, our goal as Christians is not to say, I want to destroy everything that's good in the world, and we're just going to start from scratch. That's not it at all. That wasn't the way of Christ. That's not our way. Our goal is not to wage war. It's to, uh, kind of like a gardener, it's to cultivate what is good in this world, to, to create flourishing for everyone, for all peoples. Now, as Christians, sometimes that means we have to speak Counterculturally, we have to speak what you would call prophetically. It's this idea of I'm going to speak truth, even though it's not fun. But the purpose of, of speaking truth into a culture that believes something else is not to condemn it, it's to redeem it, it's to heal it, it's, it's to restore it. Remember how everything uh, was destroyed and, and kind of fell into sin in the garden with Adam and Eve at the very beginning? That's the story of Genesis. Well, our goal is to kind of restore and make it even better than the garden. And we can do that practically every day in our cultures as we seem to seek to bring Jesus to our front lines, to where he's calling us. Now, Jesus redefines cultural flourishing as freedom for all in him. Verse 11 is kind of the focal point of our verses. It says here, Talking about kind of the Christian community. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So the early church, just in Colossae, but also in other places, it was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Now, Gentiles are non-Jews. And Jews had this rich history of kind of their, their cultural practices, but also uh, everything in the Old Testament. One of those things was circumcision. And it was easy to kind of say, well, if you want to become, if you want to kind of come into a church, if you want to become a Christian, that's, you know, the church is often made up of Jewish people, then you have to become like the Jewish people. You have to get circumcised. You have to do things our way. And this is a reminder that those kind of cultural, uh, unique attributes, those aren't the things that matter. The things that matter is the message of Jesus Christ, is the person of Christ. That if you're in Christ, that levels everything. Everything's ultimately about him. The barbarians were non-Greeks. So Greek was kind of the, you know, the, uh, the higher up culture, the, the first tier. And then Scythians, they were violent nomads who, you know, they, they were from the, kind of the region of modern-day Ukraine, and it just wasn't as educated. It, it was people that wandered. And so it was tempting for kind of the people of Colossae, you know, a nice town, to look down on others. The message of Jesus Christ destroys nationalism. <laughs> it destroys that my country and my culture is the best culture. Because in Jesus Christ... I've been forgiven, like I, I'm a broken person. I, I'm no better than anyone else, but I'm forgiven. And because I'm forgiven, and I want other people to experience the same forgiveness that I've experienced, I don't have to judge them for outward signs, that, outward things that I might not be familiar with. Belief in Christ doesn't destroy culture, it helps add value to it. Because it allows us to appreciate what each other already has. 
I was trying to think of a list of uh, kind of uh, days you could celebrate, other cultures. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with other cultures and their holidays. These are things that, you know, we can celebrate things like Cico de Mayo, that we can take part in the festivities because we want to honor those cultures. In Christ, we're set free. We're set free so that we can enjoy and encourage what is good about culture. Jesus redefines cultural, cultural flourishing as freedom for all in him. Culture flourishes when it encounters the freedom we have in Jesus. This is kind of my big idea that you can write down in the bottom of the bulletin. Culture flourishes when it encounters the freedom we have in Jesus. I wanted to end by showing you a, a beautiful work of art that has shaped uh, much of modern, modern kind of art culture, but just also just has this lasting presence. This is uh, Michelangelo's, uh, the Sistine Chapel. He painted much of the, the ceiling and wall there. The far wall, you see the final judgment. You can see other pieces like the creation of Adam on the ceiling. Michelangelo loved art. He was all about using his artistic abilities not to glorify himself, not to make Michelangelo famous, but to make God famous. He said, the true work of art is but a shadow of the divine perfection. So when we create something beautiful, it's but a shadow of, of, of the beauty that, that God has of eternity. That's a wonderful way of looking at it. This, this means that when you and I, when we create something beautiful in this life, it's, it's a reflection of, of, a coming, of a coming kingdom, a coming heaven that's going to intersect our earth. That's why they call it the new heaven and the new earth in the book of Revelation. Now, this means as Christians, we should seek to be the best musicians. We should seek to be the best artists, the best graphic designers, the best engineers, because when we do these things, we're shaping culture, but ultimately, we're doing something that has lasting value, that has eternal value. When we write redemptive stories, moving poems, beautiful songs, we're, we're, we're fashioning something that has eternal value because it's but a glimmer, it's but a shadow of what is coming. This whole idea of the now but not yet is the idea that God's kingdom is here. Jesus preached that God's kingdom is here in its beginning forms, but not fully yet. So when I do good things in this life, they have an everlasting effect. Now that doesn't mean if I paint a really good picture, we know that it'll be here in the next life. Not at all. The message of Christianity is not that one day Jesus will come back and destroy everything. That's not it at all. I think the Sistine Chapel might very well be in the next life. And we'll see it in a whole new light because it was created as a way to honor God. And so it has eternal value. Culture flourishes when it encounters the freedom we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the ways that you're molding and shaping our cultures. You use us to create things that have eternal value, that remind others that there must be something more to life than just the everyday, that there's an eternal day that's coming. We can experience it through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.